You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good, man. I feel like I always have more energy coming into second service because I am awake. I got my coffee and I'm ready to go. So you guys ready to dive in today? Awesome. Uh, So the year was uh, 1999. It was May and I was 11 years old. And our country was right in the middle of the Kosovo refugee crisis. Some of you remember that. Uh, And uh, so it was all like everybody was talking about. The school that I went to was kind of hosting this big like help kids who are displaced from their homes in Kosovo. And so our school is collecting money, blankets, all kinds of different things uh, to serve these these refugee families. And uh, one idea that I had was I was going to set up a candy stand at the end of my street and sell candy to my neighbors to donate to these families, these refugees. And so I'm running around the house collecting all of my, this was May, I was collecting my old Halloween candy that was a little bit stale, find a stick of gum here and there, like just getting everything I could together to bring down to the end of my street, set up a booth to sell candy. I wrote in really big like letters, all proceeds go to serve Kosovo refugees. Set it up and I was just blown away by how generous people were at Brad's stale candy stand. Not even kidding. I mean, people would come and buy a steel stick of gum and they'd leave a $20 bill. Others would come and buy a fun-sized Snickers, which, by the way, there's nothing fun-sized about a tiny candy bar like that. But they'd, they'd leave a $10 bill there. Like, and it was just in- incredible, people's generosity in sponsoring and buying my steel candy. And uh, the sign may have said all proceeds go to benefit refugee families, but what my generous donors did not realize at the time was Brad really wanted to save up and buy a trampoline. Like, that's what I was saving for. Hold your judgment just for a second, okay? And, uh, and so what I did is before I had even set up this candy stand, a family member came to me who were renamed Nameless to protect their identity and said, hey, all of the money that you raised to bring to your school for these refugees, we'll match that in trampoline funds. Okay? So I go and I sell and we made like 100 and 150 bucks, something like that. It was pretty good. We didn't do too bad for ourselves. And did the money go to refugees in Kosovo? Technically, yes, it did. But was that my motivation for my candy stand? Absolutely not. For me, the priority was my own needs and desires and wants. The generosity was just the afterthought. Sure, I was generous, but it was afterthought generosity. And and if we're honest with ourselves, like afterthought generosity is, is the primary way that a lot of us view kind of giving and generosity, right? This is a huge virtue in our culture right now. Afterthought generosity is not unique to the church. It's a pretty universal virtue. In in 2015, Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan committed to give away 99% of their Facebook shares to charity, right? 
They had a $45 billion in Facebook shares, so they have to learn to live on half a billion dollars. <laughs> Poor babies, right? It's, it's afterthought generosity. We already have all of this money. We'll give, we'll give most of it away and you know, kind of live on the rest. I, I've seen atheist friends of mine who will sponsor a puppy after watching Sarah McLaughlin pull up their heartstrings on those stupid commercials. Right? It's afterthought generosity. I've seen you know, non-Christian friends and family members of mine drop a 10 in the offering plate at church or you know, give money to a homeless person that they encounter on the street. There is nothing particularly uniquely Christian about afterthought generosity. And afterthought generosity is not a bad thing. It actually is a really good thing. It's virtuous. It can help people. It can make ourselves feel good. But here's what afterthought generosity can never do in our lives. It can never transform a disordered heart. Afterthought generosity can't confront the greed and materialism and selfishness that pervades a lot of what we own. Afterthought generosity can't grow our faith or expose us to the areas where God is not our priority or we're living out of order or we're finding security in our money. Afterthought generosity won't transform our disordered hearts. But what if there was a practice of generosity that has the power to transform our hearts, that has the power to reorder our lives around God? You know, you may be sitting here today and wondering to yourself, why would we spend a few weeks talking about, about generosity and giving? Well, the reason is this. Because one of our highest values of a church is, as a church is that we desire to have zero gods before God. We desire to have the order of our lives correctly ordered. And for so many of us, like if we're honest with ourselves, money is a God in our lives. Stuff is a God in our lives. And God actually is inviting us to practices of generosity that actually reorder our hearts around his. In fact, the practice that we're going to talk about today has the power to transform your heart. It is a practice that existed in the time of Abraham, throughout Israel's history, and the prophets. This very practice of generosity is what motivated God to give his only son has the power to change everything. And so what ought to make the people of God unique when it comes to generosity? Let's find out together. So we're going to be in Malachi chapter 3. That's where we're going to start. We're going to move into the New Testament a little bit here. But Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. This is what it says. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob... Are not consumed. For the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? And this is what God says Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? God says, In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So you have this guy named Malachi. He's a, he's a minor prophet in the scriptures, and he is speaking on behalf of God to the Israelite people. And this is an indictment against God towards his people. God has some pretty harsh words towards his people in this moment. And he's saying, you are robbing me, how? By withholding the tithe. Now, what is he talking about here? What is the tithe that he's talking about here? 
Well, as part of Jewish law and Jewish custom, the people of Israel were called before anything else to set aside the first and the best for God. He said, that belongs to me. You don't touch it. And what they're doing is instead of trusting God with the first and the best, they are holding it for themselves. And God is saying, you are robbing me. If I were to define the term tithe here, the word tithe, it simply just means tenth. Uh, But the tithe as practice is this. It's the first 10% of our income being given back to God for the building of his house and the expanding of his kingdom. This was part of their covenant agreement with God to return this first 10%. It even, like, when they, when they went into uh, the, the promised land, the first city they conquered was reserved for God. I mean, this principle is so ingrained throughout the scriptures that God really, really cares about it for his covenant people. And when Malachi says, you're robbing God by withholding this first and best 10%, he's using incredibly harsh language here. Right? This word for rob is not just, hey, you're taking something that doesn't belong to you. Right? There is a Hebrew word for that, but that's not the Hebrew word Malachi uses in this text. The word for rob that he uses here is an incredibly violent word. Think of a picture of going into a city and just kind of Kosovo refugee crisis style and just wrecking havoc on that place pillaging and plundering it for every ounce of value that it's worth. It is an incredibly violent concept. This is what Malachi is getting at when he says to Israel, you are robbing God by withholding the tithe. He uses kind of weird and violent language. Why does he do this? The reason he does this is because if Satan is after one thing in your life, he's after disordering your heart. He wants to teach you what it means to live independently from God and on your own strength and ability. I heard one author say at one point that Satan's main goal for our lives is not to get us to do anything particularly sinful. It's to aid us in living independently from God. Like If we can take his place, then, then, then Satan has won. And if you think about this, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they're placed in this garden... Not their garden, but God's garden, right? So he places Adam and Eve in the garden, and he says, you steward this, you tend it, you're called to cultivate this, and you can have anything you want in the garden except for the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. A tree that Scripture tells us has incredibly desirable fruit. God placed Adam and Eve in a perfect world in his garden, said, you are called to steward this, but there is a first and a best that is reserved for me, and you cannot touch it, Adam and Eve. And what do they do? In some ways, this was Adam and Eve's tithe to God in the garden. What do they do? They take for themselves what God said was reserved for him, and immediately their hearts are disordered. Immediately, when they take from God, what he said was his, set aside for him. All of creation is disordered. Havoc reigns, right? Brothers murdering brothers. I mean, this is serious stuff. So all of a sudden, it makes sense that Malachi would say, you are pillaging and plundering God's good order in his creation by withholding this from him. Does that make sense? Like, this is the level of severity that he's getting at here. One of my favorite authors, a guy named John Mark Comer, 
describes Satan's methods in our lives this way. Satan's playground is that if he can plant deceitful ideas in your mind that play to disordered desires in your heart that are normalized in a sinful society, he has, he has gotten a stake, a hold in your life. What does this have to do with the tithe or with finances? Well, for a lot of us, this can sound like, God, I am a better provider than you are. That if I trust you with my money, there's just not going to be enough. So I'll be in the driver's seat of my life. Right? Satan's playground is disordered ideas, deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are just kind of normalized in our world. And yet, the people of God are called to a different way of living, even when it comes to our money and our finances, even when it comes to our stuff. I, I wouldn't even say even, especially when it comes to our money and finances, especially when it comes to our stuff. Malachi is not just describing stinginess. He is describing completely disordered hearts, which is the root of all sin in our lives. And so if afterthought generosity, right, this kind of, when the emotions rise or when, you know, I'm, I'm convicted to do so, if afterthought generosity doesn't actually transform our hearts, what does transform our hearts? First fruits generosity. What has the power to transform our hearts is when we give God our first and our best in the area of our finances. I want to illustrate this for you this way because this is a pretty, I don't know, it's, it's a common misconception in the church. So I brought a fortune of $10 with me here. And I just want to illustrate what this is not, okay? So a lot of us think to ourselves, this is what the tithe is, or this is what generosity is in God's world. So I'll just use my family as an example. My daughter Rowan, who's not in here anymore, has a birthday coming up in April, and she really wants a new Baby Alive doll. And it has to be the one that pees on itself. I don't know why, but it does. So there's that for, for her birthday present. And my wife, like... She really wants to go on a date night. And so we're going we're gonna to go on a date night, and, and there's that. I'm, I'm using that. And we also really need groceries. And all of us know how expensive groceries are, right? Like the cost of beef, anybody? And I got to have my New York strip cooked rare in the skillet. If it's not mooing, what are you even doing? There's that. I got to have Wi-Fi. It's 2023, so I'll, I'll do that as well. I, Mountain Dew, come on, you got to do the Dew. You can't set that aside. So there's that. Then I need my gym membership that I don't use. Heaven forbid I walk outside, I, I need the gym membership that I don't use. By the way, like this is all convicting stuff for me right now, so I'm not calling anybody out but myself. Um, I got bills, right? The car payment, the boat payment, utilities, rent, like all of that's got to come out too. And I need my vacation. Michigan's depressing in the winter, so I, I need my vacation. And I got to give to my favorite church, St. Arbucks. Yes. Anybody else? <laughs> Starbucks? Coffee? Ah, and here is my tithe. God, here is my 10%. There you go. There's just one problem. This church is not a tithe. This is a tip. This is afterthought generosity. This is me saying, God, when everything else is figured out in my life, you get my leftovers. And there is nothing about this that transforms our hearts. 
There is nothing about this that actually has the power to stretch and grow and transform our faith. This practice here is still a disordered heart because we're not actually learning how to trust God before anything else, and he gets our first and best. So why does this order matter so much to God? Why? Because a disordered use of the resources God has entrusted me with leads to a disordered heart. The way that I spend my money, the way that I spend finances has the power to influence my heart. Don't believe me? Look to what Jesus said. In Matthew 6, he says, where you place your treasure, what follows? Your heart, right? So where your treasure goes, your heart follows. It doesn't simply just reveal what's in your heart. Your heart actually follows what you do and what you prioritize in your life when it comes to the area of money. And what's so striking to me and so convicting to me about Malachi is that as you read through his indictment of Israel, he's not just calling them out for robbing God, but he's actually saying you're blind to how you're robbing God. Right? He says this in in verse 8 here. Get back here a second. He says in verse 8, Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In other words, they don't even see it. They're blinded to it. And this is what is so powerful about money and materialism and greed and possessions is that they actually have the power to blind you to the hold that they have on your life. There is a reason why when we talk about this topic in church, it is harder than almost any other topic that we talk about. Believe me, I'm having the least fun in the room right now, okay? This is why it's so hard for us, because we're blinded sometimes to the power that it has on our lives. So watch this. I want you to see this because there's something powerful that happens when we change the order, when we reorder our lives around how God has invited us to reorder our lives. Right? So here's what he's after. He's after people who will say before anything else, it's the, it's the first of the month, it's the 15th of the month, payday just rolled around, and God, I know what it's going to take over the next two weeks to make it to survive. And it's going to be tight. And there are a whole lot of things to be worried about right now. The expenses of life are real. But God, in an act of not having idols in my life, in an act of complete and total dependence on you, I am back in the garden and I am choosing not to take for myself what you have said is yours. I'm giving you my first. And God, I know there's inflation and I know there's wars and rumors of wars and Chinese spy balloons and all kinds of reasons to be worried in this world right now. But God, I am choosing in faith to give you what you have said is yours before I do anything else because I, God, believe that you can do way more with 90% than I could ever do on my own apart from you with 100%. This, my friends, is what God is after. He's not after your money. Are you kidding me? He is the God of heaven and earth. He does not need our stuff. What he wants is our hearts. Hearts that are willing to say, God, I I am setting aside for you what is yours before I take anything for myself. This is not your stuff. This is, or this is not my stuff. This is yours. 
And then God offers a promise in this. In verse 10 of this same chapter, this is what he says to the people of Israel. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the tests. Test, says the Lord of hosts. I love that Malachi uses the name Lord of hosts here. You know what Lord of hosts means in scripture? It appears 261 times. It is the God of angel armies. In other words, the God who commands heaven and earth, he is saying to put that God to the test and see that I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. His promise here is not material wealth. It's not like, hey, you give and I'm going to bless you abundantly financially. His promise is when you put this into practice, your heart is reordered around his. That money loses its power over our lives. That it doesn't have the grip that it would otherwise have. That we actually, our hearts begin to look more like his when we put this into practice. Now, what I want to do here is I want to just address some of the objections. Because there's always objections when we talk about this topic. Like, isn't this just an Old Testament thing? Isn't this just a kind of life under the law thing? We don't live under the law anymore. We live under grace now. And to you, I would say, yeah, you're, you're right. We don't live under the law anymore. We do live under grace. We don't live, we're not bound by Jewish law anymore. But did you know that Jesus talked about money more than almost any other topic? It's his second most talked about topic behind the kingdom of God. He talked about money more than love, sex, hell, sin. Jesus talks about money a lot. It's as if he knew it would have a grip on our lives and that some reordering would need to be done in this area for us to truly reflect his heart in the world. And so he actually, he calls out the Pharisees, who, by the way, were the best keepers of the law and probably the best tithers around, And this is what he says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, that sounds delicious, and have neglected, put that with my New York strip, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, Hey, Pharisees, scribes, you tithe, right? You, you do this. You tithe. Great. Don't stop doing that. But if that's all you're doing, if all you're doing is checking a duty off a religious to-do list, you're still a slave to the law. Grace hasn't made its way into your heart. He says, you, you do that, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy, In other words, you can tithe and have no eyes for the people around you and the needs around you. You can say, I did my duty, I've done my thing, I'm good. And Jesus calls that out and he says, don't stop that part. That's good. Keep doing that, right? He affirms the practice of tithing, but he says he wants more from us than that. If the law wanted 10%, Jesus wants everything. We just sang a song, All Hail King Jesus. And I just wonder, even just now, is that just words we're singing? Or if we were to peel back the curtain of our lives, does the way we use this stuff actually reflect we believe all hail King Jesus? That he is Lord over all of it. 
Some of us, we've claimed Jesus as our Savior, but we haven't made him Lord of our lives. There's still other gods that are competing for top place in our life. And what I love about Jesus and the type of life that he invites us into is that you're right, we don't live under the law anymore. We live under grace. But there is not a single instance in Scripture, if you find it, show it to me, but it's not there, where someone living under grace became less generous because they weren't bound for the law, by the law. Grace always expresses itself in this outrageous outpouring of generosity. And I think about our church, and we have a very, very generous church. I'm just constantly blown away by your generosity. And it's so much fun to be a part of. And I even just think this last season, around Christmas time, we got more requests for people just in need than we ever have in the history of our church. People who are struggling to make ends meet and pay bills and just a, a sign of the times that we're in. Even like I've been hearing a lot of talk with our essential store and hand-to-hand ministries that the needs are increasing in our community. Some of us are feeling the pinch of that right now. And one of the things that I'm so proud of our church for is that we have discernment teams that when somebody has a need, it comes to us, there's an application process, there's a whole thing that we go through. And we have a discernment team that errs consistently on the side of being generous as a church. And so there are literally people who are not being evicted from their apartments right now because of your generosity. There are people who are able to pay their electric bill right now because of your generosity. And I don't say that to brag. I just say that I, I, I believe that Jesus is after something when he says, don't just tithe because it's a religious to-do item, but tithe and give because your life is about generosity because you are a recipient of my grace. Amen. That's the principle here, guys. So even as we continue, I, I just I want to address the elephant in the room. Like the single biggest resistance I think that people in general would feel to a message like this, and I only say this because I have felt this resistance many, many times. But the single biggest resistance I think we feel to something like this is, is the pastor just after my money? Like does he just want my stuff? And to that I would say, yes, I want a new trampoline. Really bad. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. That, that's, not, that's not at all what we're after here. But I think it's a fair question. It's a fair question because we want to ask the question, does the, heart, does the church have a disordered heart when it comes to money? Right? Even as a church, we can have mixed up priorities if there is not processes and discernment and just this reflection and this time with God of allowing us to be convicted. And so if that's resistance that you feel, I just want to offer you a couple things that I think will put your mind at ease here. Number one, I am the world's worst salesman. So if anything salesy comes out of this, that's not me. Like, I'm just horrible at that. Uh, but number two, I don't know who gives what in this church. I don't have access to that information, and I've chosen not to have access to that information. In fact, the book of James says that you want to know a surefire, disordered heart of a church? Look at how they treat the richest of the rich in the church and the poorest of the poor. Look at how they give preference and things like that. My absolute commitment to you is to have boundaries and barriers in place where that does not happen in this community. Amen. I am so deeply convicted on that. So I've chosen not to know who gives what. I don't even have access to that information. There are people who watch that, people who do, but, but I'm not one of them. The second thing that I would say, and not everybody agrees with me on this, so I'll just say this with uh, knowing some disagreement may come my way, but... 
you don't necessarily have to give 10% to this specific church here. I actually believe that we are called to give the first and best 10% of our income plus some if, if that's where God is leading us. But I don't actually believe all of that has to come to this community right here. If there is, if there is a Christian nonprofit that is doing important work to expand and grow the kingdom of God, give a portion of your income to them too. Like there's, I, I seriously am so after this being a heart posture that we're after, not just a, a dollar thing that, like I really want you to hear that. Which is why I will never go in and say, well, I assume this person's giving 10% and this person's not. No, I, I would never do that because I don't know where else you're giving. I don't know if it's your first 10% or your last 10%. This is between you and God. And we are just talking about it as a church. We're just bringing out these awkward subjects into light to be able to say, hey, we're a family that can talk about some of this stuff and not have it be weird or this great source of shame or judgment. We have zero interest in doing any of that. The question, though, that I want us to ask is this. Are my financial priorities leading me to God's heart or a disordered heart? Is the way I'm using finances leading me to a disordered heart or is it leading me towards God's heart? In other words, am I using my money in a way that makes me more like God or am I using my money in a way that makes me more like the world? Our first and best should always go back to him. And guys, any area of your life that is not fully surrendered to the lordship of Jesus is completely open to spiritual attack. And we, we can use excuses like, well, I give my time. Or I give my talent. But God wants your treasure too. Where your treasure is, your heart follows. And if we don't actually put this stuff into practice in our lives, we've opened ourselves up to spiritual attack from the enemy, a disordered heart. I'm going to just be vulnerable for a second here. Um, this past week, I went to the, the revival services that are happening in Asbury, Kentucky, or in Asbury University. And just a powerful outpouring of the Spirit of God. And I just want to give kudos even to Trent here for the way you led us this morning. I mean, I just see glimpses of that happening in this community. And so I came back here and I was like, I don't want to speak on tithing. Like, I just experienced this massive move of the Spirit of God in my own life and people around me. And I just got so convicted about my attitude coming up here and speaking this message. And this is what God said. He said, Brad, this is precisely the area for some people that is keeping them from experiencing a move of my spirit in their lives. That you cannot say, I'm going to set aside the spirit of God so I can talk about finances. They are not separate from each other. That for some of us, the very thing that we need to do to experience a fresh outpouring of the spirit of God is reorder our lives in a way that invites that to happen. Amen? Amen. So are we willing to do that? Here's what's so cool about God is that he's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't first done himself. That this is the very heart of the gospel. God, in his infinite mercy, gave us Jesus, his first and best. Scripture describes him as a first fruit, a first and best offering for our sins. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians Chapter 8, he says, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I love that he calls giving a grace. See that you excel in this. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Think about the radical generosity of Jesus on the cross. That God's response to Adam and Eve, who could not give him their first fruit in the Garden of Eden, his very response to that was to give sinful humanity his first fruit offering for our sins. And his invitation is just for us to start reflecting his heart back to him in the area of our finances. So I want to invite the the band up as as we close here. And uh, I just want to share a quick story about my childhood as as we close, and then we're going to go into a, a final piece here. Um, But I grew up in a family that was, like, we did fine as a family, um, but my parents were notoriously cheap. We were very Dutch as a family, okay? Like, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. Like, you want to start a Dutch parade, throw a penny down the street, watch them all run? Sorry. I can say those jokes because I'm Dutch, okay? But I grew up in a a pretty notoriously frugal and and cheap family, and I remember we we lived in this one house, and and, uh, it was like an older part of the neighborhood, and then our backyard, you could see all of the brand new houses that were being built. I mean, these massively huge houses, and we were in kind of the older house, and there was one that we called the White House that that was behind us, just huge. And I remember thinking constantly as a kid, like, why are my parents so cheap? (laughs) <laughs> like, we go to Wendy's and order off the dollar menu, or we go to the, the ball game and, nope, never get any concessions, or, you know, my, my friends would get way more Christmas gifts than I. All stupid stuff, like when you're an adult and you look back and you're, you're really thankful for all of that stuff. But as a kid, I, like, really wrestled with that. Like, why are my parents so stingy? But here's what I, I see now, kind of in hindsight, looking back as an adult. My parents were not stingy. They had priorities, and they always tied. They were some of the most generous people I know. They are some of the most generous people I know. See, my, my parents might have been perceived to be stingy towards us as kids. They weren't, but that was what I thought. But they were never once stingy towards God. And I'm so grateful for that example. And I know for some of us, we never had an example set like that for us. This is a brand new concept for some of us. But I got to tell you, I promise you, it will transform some things in your family. It will transform some things in your heart when you're, when you're willing to put this into practice. So I want to offer a challenge for us. And the challenge is this. On your seat or near your seat, there is a, a brochure that says 90-day tithing challenge on it. You can pull that. Um, if you don't have one near you, they'll have some on the way out as well. But I want to encourage you to just grab this right now. Take a look at it. 90 days from today, from right now, is May 20th. And I want to challenge you for the next 90 days to reorder your finances around God's heart. To just give it a shot. Maybe you already tithe and you you kind of check off the list and you got the first 10% and that goes to God. Maybe God's calling you to step into a different kind of generosity, more generosity in that area. Maybe for you, you never started tithing. And so 10% sounds really overwhelming to you. Start with 2%. Just start with something. Okay. I think I got cut out. Hear me on this. It does not have to come to the church. Like, like just do it somewhere. Start somewhere. But the most important part of this is we want to hear your story of how God moves through doing this, through putting this into practice.
we're going to revisit this. Sorry, I'm cutting out here in our giving time over this next season. But I want to encourage you to start with putting God first in the area of finances and to watch him move. We want to hear your story. This is not for you to turn in. This is not for anybody but for you. You take this home. Treat this as a covenant between you and God. Put it somewhere where you'll recognize it, where you'll see it. And I promise you, God will do something in your heart. He'll do something in your family. He'll do something in your life when you make the choice to put him first in this area, just like he offered his first and best to us on the cross. So let me close by just offering a prayer and then we're going to respond in worship today. All hail King Jesus. Father, I pray that those are not just words that we sing. I pray that our entire lives are ordered around that. That God, we desire to put you first. That you have no rival, you have no equal. And God, this morning we repent of the ways that we've tried to put ourselves in the driver's seat of our lives. We repent of the ways that we've chosen anxiety and worry over trust, over faith. So God, today I, I just pray for my brothers and sisters here, for each and every one of us that is here. God, may we make bold decisions to reorder our lives with you as king. Jesus, you are not just our savior. You are our Lord, our master. So Jesus, we humbly submit ourselves to obedience to you in this area, an area that we want to white-knuckle grip with everything in us. And we say to you, Jesus, all we have and all we are belongs to you. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.